Today is Wednesday. It's January 10th, 2024. It's 2.39 in the afternoon. And hello again. This is John Williams. This is the Mincing Rascals podcast. We broadcast portions of this Saturday nights when the schedule and the sporting events of the world of the world allow us on WGN Radio at 8 o'clock. But you can always hear me weekdays on WGN from 10 to 2. I'm Kate Flies, former Chicago reporter and columnist, now a proprietor of the sort of Chicago history website, Roseland Chicago, 1972. And I'm Eric Zorn, the proud Michigan graduate who edits the Picayune Sentinel Weekly News letter it's on substack as you uh, may not know if you didn't watch the video pre-roll eric not only has michigan fans behind him in his screen photo but he's wearing a michigan shirt and is that a michigan hat i don't know what his underwear looks oh, yeah. like but i'm sure it's blue and maize or maize and blue or whatever congratulations eric we're happy for you and your team yeah it's funny people congratulate you on your team winning like i had anything to do with it <laughs> it was me i I, ch- I, ch- I changed what chair I was sitting in, and that changed the luck of the team. Now, it was it was a, it was a really fun game, and not it was tense, but not too tense. You know, they they won by three touchdowns, but it was it was ten minutes to go or so. The game was still in doubt. By the way, did we mention this in this podcast? I talked about it so much on the radio since we last visited. I don't know if I mentioned it on the podcast, but because of the NIL money that comes in and the portal, which allows people to pursue name image likeness money the amount of money that big time college football players make has really gone up from zero two years ago to now whatever the market will bear what do you suppose the average starting football player in a power five conference makes how much name image likeness money per year if he starts at a power five conference football team i'll guess seventy five thousand dollars kate you want to play i was going to say a hundred grand hundred and three $103,000. Well, here's the interesting wrinkle on that. Well, what do you think the average w- female athlete? I know female ba- well, I know female is. basketball players make I think it's $9,000. 9,000 is right. Caitlin that, Clark that's, uh, might be the exception to that. <laughs> In fact, they're probably all getting 1500 bucks. She's getting a million, so she's pulled the average up. Which is probably she totally deserves it too. She yeah. totally deserves it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. One of the real problems with this with this nil money is that it goes through these fake charities that that, that are set up outside the university, and it, in effect, it subverts Title Nine. We're just talking about how little female athletes are paid, women athletes are paid at colleges, and that's because the donors they want to see success in men's basketball, and men's football, and so the entire purpose of Title Nine was to force universities to invest equally in men's and women's sports. And this is really th- throwing that all out the window. And it's to those of us who really believe in, in Title IX, it's 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 a problem. Right. And these associations mm-hmm. don't have to subscribe to federal law or, well, at least to um, NCAA laws. And so while you have to have equal numbers of scholarships or equal amount of money going to the various programs, they can set up these associations that generate as much money as they want. That's why uh, the Texas Longhorns had a Horns for Hope, quote unquote, charity, tax exempt. You get to write it off. And the coach said, we need linemen. And so they said, okay, for every lineman that commits to Texas, we'll give you $50,000. They got seven of them. Utah football players get, if they stay eligible, a $65,000 Dodge truck. <laughs> and, and of this course, something I hope they're going to revisit and maybe try and tweak a little bit. I mean, it's not right, I feel like, for these athletes to 
be doing what they do, which is pretty amazing, and make nothing when the schools are making money off of them, et cetera. But at the same time, the Title IX issue is is just ridiculous. And 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 of course, just the way it, it completely subverts the whole alleged purpose of sports. Or college sports, amateur sports. Yeah. I think they should get paid, but th- there's something that's wrong about this. And look, they're only, what, two years into NIL? So I suspect that what we're seeing right now is the Wild West, and there will be some taming of this down the road. Uh, yeah. I, yeah. It seems like there ought to be. We talk too much about crime on this podcast, and maybe we talk too much about crime in the mainstream but at least there is always some new crime wrinkle to talk about. Kate Plies said in our group chat before today's pod, I'll quote you now, I know John Williams doesn't hold with bashing Chicago as a crime-ridden hellhole that we all need to leave, but, she wrote, as a native who isn't leaving, I'll suggest that the combination of the crash-and-grab at Prada with the suggestion to pull bollards up and down Michigan Avenue, or to put them up and down Michigan Avenue, and I guess Oak Street and Walton, plus Andy Shaw's no longer walking to the subway at night from his daughter's place in Logan Square, is a combination that makes crime a salient issue again. And I say fair enough, Kate. I think those concrete stubs along the street to keep vehicles from accessing the front of shops can be found elsewhere, including our nation's capital, and I don't think that's a bad idea. In fact, I'm not even super sad about that. I think it's smart. It's a sign of the times, but I don't think the times are as bad as maybe Andy Shaw suggested or that those would. Mm. Well, it, it's not like I'm like, you know, rah, rah, rahing about putting up bollards on, on Michigan Avenue. The sad thing is that I don't think we really, given this crime situation, have much of a right to tell the Michigan Avenue Business Association that if they want to raise the money and do that, that they shouldn't. The The product crash and grab, was it on Monday, is not the only one. It, it happens on Michigan Avenue now. It happens everywhere. Oh. And it happened at a tiny deli two blocks away from me. You know, I hate to talk about it too much, too, like you were saying that you felt like maybe you talk about it too much, but not talking about it doesn't make it go away, doesn't fix anything, and everybody knows it's going on and wonders why nobody's talking about it. Who should pay for those things? Well, I do think that they should mostly pay for it. If Who's not they? Completely. Who? The, 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 the Merchants Association. As that- opposed to the city? Well, they, they do have the special taxing district that they set up for themselves to do things like this. I know that, so, but it would seem to me like the city pays for police. The city pays for you know a lot of law enforcement things. This almost strikes me as a law enforcement thing. I, I don't yeah. know how much those cost per bump, okay. but I say the city could pay for those too. But are you going to pay for them all over the city? Yes. I don't think that's quite fair. Why not? Oh, you mean because I'm, not, I'm doing it for him, because but I'm not doing it for him? Because these because these crash and grabs happen everywhere yeah. in, in neighborhoods all over the place now. Like I said, two blocks away from me. All right. There are police SUVs parked up and down Michigan Avenue just yeah. sitting there, and they don't yeah. do it everywhere. So the city, city has decided there's some places that are either visible enough or important enough that we're going to put more resources into. I don't mind. that you got to pick a spot. I They pick there. Fine. If they want to put them up where they think it would be most efficacious, I say do it. 
But I would also allow people to, in the common way, put some up to if a business or an association wants to do so. The problem that you're going to have is that if you put the bollards up on Michigan Avenue with these luxury stores, and then the problem just moves. These criminals will say, well, we, we can't we can't drive through the sidewalk and into Prada now because there's bollards there, so we're going to go to another neighborhood where they don't have them. And pretty soon your entire city is is protected has got to be protected by bollards. Every business has got to be protected by them. And I, you know, I'm not sure that's a terrible thing. They're not particularly ugly. I, you go by like the Dirksen Federal Building and you see uh, they're not bollards, but they're just they're concrete blocks or whatever. Right. You can't possibly drive up to there. And it's you know it's just a, sort of a, a fact of life. It's a way of life now. If you look at the statistics, you see that that homicides are down 13% in the city and and fatal shootings are also down 13% and all shootings are down 16%. But you look deeper into the table, you see that robbery is up 40%, aggravated batteries up. And this is year over year from 22 to 23 that uh, aggravated batteries up about 18% and uh, all violent crime victimization is up 13%. So so the, the perception is in is in some ways is reality We're, we are seeing dramatic increases in the kinds of crimes that that really do scare people and that you know most of us are are think more afraid of of being robbed when you have uh, you know robberies being you know eleven thousand eight hundred and fifty eight of them in in twenty three than we are of of being homicide victims even though you know, obviously being murdered is is worse but you do have these these crimes and you want People just want to feel like that that the police and the city are are doing something about it, uh, and and so I, I I think that we we I don't think we should get too wrapped up in all this because there are you know if you if you look over the decades you see this and we're not at historic highs, but I also think that we don't want to brush off people who are expressing their concern about this and wanting wanting action taken. If we need bollards on Michigan Avenue, and if most people I know, and this is true, um, there are carjackings in their neighborhoods and crash and grabs and that sort of thing. You know, when you get to that point, I would feel better if at least most of the city's leaders would acknowledge that instead of touting murders being down huh. or like Kim Fox yesterday was touting the fact that shoplifting and other things aren't being prosecuted as much. Well, they're not being prosecuted as much because they raised the level from $300 to $1,000. I'm not hearing what I want to hear from our leaders that they understand it's an issue and a comprehensive something needs to get started. Any idea what that is? No. I'm not sure that it's the state's attorney's job to fix. I'm happy to hear what they have to say. I hope we get a good state's attorney. But I'm not sure that whoever the next state's attorney is is going to be able to have a dramatic impact on that number. I mean, this really is a policing issue to me, and it's a policy issue even outside the state's attorney's office. The long game is, what do we do about why these crimes happen, and then from a policing standpoint, what literally are we going to do when we see something happen? Are we going to chase certain criminals? Uh, are we going to pursue them? Yeah, uh, I, yeah I, probably the, they knew, do need to uh, amend the incredibly complicated chase policy. Yeah, uh, It's obviously a cost-benefit analysis, and there's no perfect place to come down on it, but surely we've gone a little too far 
But when Andy, when, when Andy Shaw, who's longtime journalist in town and much loved and, and much respected, said that he's afraid to walk, what was it, to the red line? Pete says I in think, my ears it was the blue line. I think he's walking to the blue line yeah. from his... But, uh, I, but I think we should all be cautious, you know, like he's 75 years old. I don't know if that factors into a person's sense of safety or self because you're older and you can't run as fast or you can't defend yourself. That, that should not be a calculation. I don't know why I brought that up, but I noted that his age, I think as you get older, you do get more fearful. But he's walked every neighborhood. He's reported from every neighborhood in this city for years and years and years. And he says this is the first time that he's felt ill at ease. He's worried for his safety walking about Chicago. And I understand well, that. I do, too. And there's also all these reports about the, these robberies. They're not just, you know, stick them up, give me your wallet and your phone anymore, that they that they pistol whip people and they body slam them for no apparent reason other than just to take control of the situation. So that so that you do have these these robberies that are really terrifying to read about. And again, you know, it's like if I'm walking down the street and somebody puts a gun in my face and, and I have to turn over my belongings, that that certainly is is scary and and traumatizing but to be then assaulted on top of that to be to be beaten uh adds another layer of fear i mean i i'm guessing that andy shaw realizes that his possessions can be or can be insured but that you know anybody of any age can get, get their body slammed there was that video that went viral was it over the summer of a guy walking just walking down an alley and two guys just beat the crap out of him to take his backpack and they didn't need to do that. There were two of them and just one of him. But there just seems to be this delight in mayhem that it's scary. And and uh, I think that there is a sense among, among people who are perpetrating these kind of crimes that if they're seen, they can run away and the cops aren't going to chase them. They can drive off really fast. The cops aren't going to chase them. And uh, and, and that, that just has to change. Agreed. Uh, I mean, most people I know are just kind of rolling with it. But but I do know several people who actually have left because um, of that. I wherever I walk in Chicago, I always now look around. I don't go down. I don't turn a corner on a block. I don't see who's where and why. I don't drive up to a red light that I don't leave a little space between me and the car in front of me. Should I need an escape path? And that's if I'm in the business district or the Gold Coast, or I went to um, I went to the DePaul game last night with my son. It was an eight o'clock tip. We're driving back at ten thirty at night on South Michigan Avenue, and I'm very conscious about how we're driving, where we're driving. I'm always on the lookout now. I didn't used to be. I don't know what the moral of my story is, except that I think we all do need to do what we can to protect ourselves. I know I sound so unsympathetic to what Andy Shaw was going through. I think what he's talking about, he articulated well a lot of the fear and anxiety people have. Maybe my baseline frustration is, other than criticizing it or criticizing the people that can't fix it, I haven't heard anybody say what we need to do about it. I'm like, yeah, I know, I know, I know. But in the meantime... I went to and from the basketball game last night and had a swell time, except my team lost by about 25. And I see people shopping. And and I don't think there's any regard for the balance. I think that's really my problem. There's no regard for the balance in the descriptions of what life is like in the city when it comes to the media reporting on it. It's all about crime. It's all about our fear. And I'm feeling Yandy. And it wasn't his point in that piece to say, hey, Chicago's a great town. But Chicago still is, and the media doesn't mm-hmm. seem to be 
very interested in telling that story. They don't have to be boosters. But it's to me, it, it begins to border on an inaccurate representation of Chicago. You, if you watch the evening news, you do not know what life is like in Chicago. And, and maybe it was always that way. I, I think it's always been that way. John. It's always been okay. that okay. way. If but, we're going by TV news, yeah. Right, but the reporting, I don't know, then maybe if the reporting is more acute about the crime, the margin is more important still. Well, as I said before in this podcast, I think that the, the how, how many cameras there are everywhere and how many websites there are that are reporting on crime, that it's more in our face than it was when it was just at the top of the 10 o'clock news every night and in briefs in the newspaper, that we see videos all the time of people getting robbed or beaten and that has an effect on us this this incident that i described a few minutes ago about the, the yeah. guy walking down the alley with his knapsack on it's carrying a pizza or something like that and yeah. and he, he just he, we wouldn't have seen that because we didn't have those cameras everywhere 10 years ago even and and now we see these things and they're and they are i mean they're terrible for the young man who's beaten up but it's also it, it, it creates this kind of corrosive traumatizing effect on people who see it so uh, i mean i I don't know how you can talk people out of that i mean you can talk about how wonderful chicago is and it is a wonderful city and there's all kinds of things going on and we shouldn't lose sight of that but i I don't think you can sugarcoat it too much i do have one suggestion i think every monday when my radio station and other radio stations every day when they say here's what happened like the, the first story in the newscast will be about the crime it's that way on every tv station in the meantime there was um, sometimes 100,000 people in town for a convention, and they went to restaurants, and the convention went great. And how does the experience of those 100,000 people not count when you're talking about the experience of people in Chicago? I'm not a news director, and I'm, <laughs> I'd probably lose my job if I said 100,000 people were at the convention, and they all had a great time. In other news, uh, you know, that would seem yeah. like an ad for that association, but they don't even seem to be interested in trying to figure that out. I think that's more of a broadcast news problem, though. I think if you look at the Sun-Times website, the Tribune website, Block Club Chicago, those kind of places, any place but CWB, of course, mostly what is on the homepage is all very positive. You know, look at this great person we're honoring. Look at this new business that's opening up. And the... um, those kind of websites do not yeah. emphasize the crime uh, at all. That may be true. Here's the front page of the Chicago Tribune, Wednesday, January 10th. Trump immunity claim meets doubt. Chicago Public Schools told to add more training. Park District gets big haul from Lollapalooza in 23. And sparks fly at meeting of Harvey Council. There's no crime story on page one or two. Or three. Uh, That's an interesting point, Kate. When it doesn't get reported, people know that it's not getting reported. I mean, I can just give you an example myself. A a block away from here where I walk my dog, there there was somebody who shot off a bunch of gunshots. I only heard about it because somebody I knew um, happened to live right across the street from it and was home at the time. It did not get reported by the University of Chicago, which sends out public safety alerts, but they didn't tell us about this. I happen to know a University of Chicago cop, so I ran into him. I said, hey, what's going on here? My friend tells me there was a bunch of gunshots right over here, and I didn't even hear about it, and this is where I walk every day. And he was like, yeah, they 
they don't want to tell people. I've heard gunshots in my neighborhood, too, and I don't live anywhere near you, but in a safe part of town further north. Eric, have you heard gunshots in your neighborhood before, Eric Zorn? You don't live near either of us. Have I? Yes, I have. I live, I live uh, right on the edge of Albany Park, and I certainly have heard gunshots and have neighbors who've had uh, bullets fly through their uh, windows and so on. But it's it's pretty rare, I would say, where we are. Uh, it happens, but it's not it's not a, by any means an every week or month occurrence even. So These type of things did not used to happen in Hyde Park, for instance, and obviously the the kind of um, gangs of guys going around in cars, jumping out and robbing people on the street. That's happening much more up around you on the north side and northwest side. Doesn't really happen so much in Hyde Park. That didn't used to happen. I'm just giving you one example. You may have just heard somebody ping into our podcast, and that's David Schultz, who I'm going to introduce there, the panel to. This is David Schultz, who is a distinguished university professor at Hamlin University in Minnesota. He's an author of many books. He's a University of Minnesota guy as well. He has appeared many times on my radio shows in Chicago and in Minneapolis when I work there. And he's understood to be one of America's distinguished professors about constitutional law. He's also pretty good on voting and how certain states will be important in certain elections. David, welcome to the Mincing Rascals podcast. Thanks for joining us today. My pleasure to be on the show. I just wanted to start maybe, and we'll bring you in here in 60 seconds, say David, but the Chicago Tribune editorial today is headlined, Better That Voters Reject Trumpism Than Judges. We're all thinking about the 14th Amendment now and the third section of it. Everybody's an expert now, right? And we've talked about this on the Mincing Rascals podcast in the past. The Tribune's editorial is better that the voters reject Trump or Trumpism than the judges. The idea being that he should stay on the ballot, presumably in all 50 states. Interestingly, the article itself, the text of the editorial, doesn't specifically say that Trump should or should not be on the ballot. They're a little agnostic about it, but you can tell where they're leaning in this. Better that voters reject Trumpism than the judges. And then they say, but Trump makes that case hard to argue. Because here in Illinois, we have... It was a law, right, Eric, at one point uh, in Illinois that the candidates would have to sign a pledge. Eric, are you following me on this? Yes, I am following you on it. It was a law, and the federal courts said, no, that is an infringement on freedom of speech, and you can't make candidates sign a loyalty oath. We're we're not living in uh, Joe McCarthy's America anymore. And I certainly support the idea that there should not be a loyalty pledge by a political candidate. I think it's it's a strange it's vestige of, it's of, of previous times. And my take on this is, I don't understand why anyone would want Trump to sign something like that, like anything he says is going to be held accountable. I mean, yeah, he's not he's right. not a tr- not a truthful man, so he could sign the pledge; it wouldn't make any difference. Okay, but, uh, but and Trump anyway. said, in fact, that I won't sign the loyalty pledge anyway, and I am less interested in that, to be honest with you, than the Tribune's interest in letting the voters decide rather than the Constitution be preeminent in this case. So, a couple of things there, David, that we're talking about in Chicago. Out of the gate, what are, what's your reaction to what you've heard so far? Well, what I've heard so far is that when the case goes to the U.S. Supreme Court, more likely than not, they're going to probably agree with the editorial and say that Trump is allowed to appear on the ballot. 
and that a state like Colorado should not be able to make this decision on their own. So I think it's pretty likely that the Supreme Court, again, they've already scheduled oral arguments for the case, um, are going to rule that the insurrection clause is not going to be a bar for Trump. Now, they're not going to they're not going to do it happened in Colorado, where a court in Colorado actually ruled on the merits and said Trump has engaged in insurrection um, and therefore is not eligible. What I think the court's going to say is they're going to decide without deciding. By that, they're going to overturn the lower court decision and either say the insurrection clause doesn't apply um, or they're going to say perhaps lesser chance here that it doesn't apply to the office of the presidency or they might just say that the clause was written for the circumstances of the civil war and it doesn't apply now but i think it's very unlikely that the supreme court is going to um, um, uphold the lower court decision and and there's something that's perplexing also about about what's happening right now think about just recently, a court of appeals is having to decide whether Trump has immunity as a former president from prosecution. That case, once it's decided by the court of appeals, is going to go to the Supreme Court. We've got this case going to the Supreme Court. Part of the question is, how much do we want the courts versus the people to decide yeah. who's president of the United States? Yeah. And I think, again, I haven't seen the piece that you're referring to, but I think that's where the newspaper is headed, is to say, we learned 24 years ago in Bush v. Gore that maybe the courts shouldn't be, stick their nose into matters like this. What is your assessment of the potential that the court, like you said, will side with Trump? Do you think that's a good decision or an appropriate decision? First off, I think it's exceedingly likely. I mean, I would I would be stunned beyond stunned if they agreed with the lower Colorado court decision. Um, so so I would put it in this in the realm of 90 percent plus that they overturn. And I am sympathetic, you know, to to the argument that says that for what Trump did on January 6th, he doesn't deserve to be reelected. Having said that, I still think that people have the right to be able to make that choice and, and decision in terms of it. But I'll also throw in more caveat. Let's have this conversation in six months. And I say that because Trump is facing um, four criminal trials, 91 indictments. Let us say somewhere along the line in the next few months, he's actually convicted of, of some of these criminal charges. I might be willing to have a very different discussion mm-hmm. having seen a court and maybe a jury find that beyond a reasonable doubt he committed criminal acts. That that well, that's where I go. Well, David, is, isn't it one of the questions about this Fourteenth Amendment issue? What do they mean by committing insurrection? That yes. wh- who? What is the threshold for that? What? Who? Who is the finder of fact? Uh, and and so the court could weigh in and say what they meant by insurrection is this and not this. Or they could just say this is a, a – I mean, there seems like there's a bunch of different ways they could go. They could say this is a matter for Congress to decide. Yes. Um, yes. Or or they could say that, as you said, this is something that was written for the – they didn't want Jefferson Davis to be president of the United States. So that's why they wrote this, and it has no application anymore. Even though, uh, you know, when they wrote the Second Amendment, they had no idea about the kind of weaponry that people have anymore. And you could say that that doesn't apply anymore either, but, but – yeah. uh, 
it, it does it does strike me that there are a bunch of interesting questions out there. And, and one thing that I've heard from from scholars on both sides, which is that, that what the Supreme Court decides is going to be really interesting, but how they decide it yes. is going to be really important. Uh, that in, in in this case, maybe more than than a lot of cases, like, like the language they use and what yes. and how they how they because I think most people do agree with you that, and, and I I do too that this, that's probably the court's going to say like no, this is not this does not rise to that level of kicking him off the ballot, but but how they do that uh, is really going to be important. And I'm wondering what what you see as the various paths they could take. I agree with you, by the way. And that's why I use the phrase deciding not to decide. They will keep him on the ballot, but it, but they're not going to actually engage in the discussion of saying, did he engage in insurrection or not? And there's a couple of reasons for that. One of them is the Supreme Court is not equipped to, to get involved in fact finding. I mean, that's the job of trial courts, you know, you know, you know, when we have a trial here. There's a trial court in Colorado that reached the conclusion and said, yes, he did engage in insurrection. I don't think the Supreme Court wants to get anywhere near that issue here, because you're right. What's what's an insurrection? What's the proof that you have to show? Um, is, is is the level of proof beyond a reasonable doubt like in a criminal trial? You know, you know, you know what might it be? We, um, we don't know. So I think the court will punt on that and say, we don't want to engage in a discussion of whether he committed insurrection or not. We don't think, though, that state courts or district courts have this authority to do so. Congress has to speak first. Congress has to give us some guidance on this. And if Congress wants to say, here's what insurrection means, and here's the standards of proof, then we have a different, conver- a totally different conversation. But what's interesting, if you read Trump's brief to the U.S. Supreme Court, this is really dangerous. Um, what Trump... Um, attorneys are doing, among other things, they're actually asking the Supreme Court to rule on and say he didn't engage in insurrection. I think that's a really gutsy move because he's basically saying to rule on the merits, make a decision. What if then the court were to come back and say, yeah, you did engage in insurrection. You're off the ballot all across the country. Yeah, right. Well, it does walk like a duck. Uh, uh, Last week, I was really kind of feeling that, yeah, it would be wrong to subvert people's democratic right to choose him or hopefully not choose him. I hate to see that taken away by one state. You know, I mean, how many times does Texas do things that I completely disagree with? I don't want Mm -hmm. necessarily Texas to decide or, or Colorado or whoever who I get to have a choice of in president. But I've pretty much completely changed my mind by this time this week. I, I'm I'm wondering, David, what you think about the argument that Section 3, which is what we're talking about here, Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, that it's, it's, it's above whether or not someone gets due process and it's above somebody's free speech rights, that it that no pun intended, trumps those things sure. because of the fact that it is an amendment and it came after those other amendments. So it's it's above those. Yeah. Yeah. The in the dissent in the Colorado Supreme Court case, the dissent in there, they talk a lot about that. And they say that there's a due process problem here is that we're essentially declaring Trump guilty of a crime insurrection without giving him a real trial uh, without 
again, many of us know from watching too many Law and Order shows, you know, the standard is beyond a reasonable doubt. Uh, uh, we don't have any of that applying here. So, so in that sense, I think there's there's some real serious concerns here. That's why I was saying before, is that potentially, let's say four or five months from now, one of the criminal trials concludes, a jury finds Trump guilty of, let's say, subversion or something like that. I might be more inclined to have a discussion to say, okay, uh, he's had his due process. He's had a criminal conviction at this point. Let's let's now revisit the issue. Okay. Now, the second, in terms of free speech, you know, we all have a right right to free speech, but the question becomes: at one point, does the speech cross over into um, unprotected action? And if you look at the indictment that he's facing in Washington D.C., at no point. Does that indictment actually refer to anything that he says on January 6th? It's all about the the efforts to try to um, prevent Congress from from doing its job to certify the Electoral mm. College and votes and stuff like that. So that's a really smartly crafted uh, indictment that gets around that issue. But even if, let's say, we were to look at it as four squares, uh, does, does a person have a right to basically advocate not just advocate but tell people go out and overturn the government especially when we've appears to have evidence that he's helping orchestrate that you know in terms of plotting and planning and stuff like that by any standard of the free first amendment that crosses the line from speech over into conspiracy um, conspiracy to obstruct justice that takes us out of the realm of free speech. Well, they do say you can't give aid or comfort to the enemies thereof. So yeah. it would seem to me like that would accommodate what you're talking about a little bit. I've wondered if the problem wasn't give aid or comfort to whom, to who are the enemies that we're speaking about. Is it the people that stormed the Capitol, but do we declare them enemies of the United States, or were they just criminals who are paying the price for it? A lot of them are getting prosecuted. I also have this question for you, David. Does it matter that the word President of the United States does not appear in the 14th Amendment? It says no person shall be a senator or representative in Congress or elector of president and vice president or hold any office, civil or military under the United States. Maybe he's the commander in chief. So uh, I could read I the whole thing, but they don't say you can't be president of the U.S. in this amendment. Why don't they say that in this? And is that a, a weakness in this amendment? I do think the president of the United States is an officer of the United States. There's tons of court decisions about that. Okay. So if you're just going to debate it on that score, you could say past precedent, past decisions have already re- resolved this issue. However, what's interesting is a little bit of history here is that the original version of the insurrection clause actually did have reference to the president and it was taken out. Okay, so now the question is why? And, and I've got a theory. Now I'm not a professional historian. You know, I'll say so. I play one. I play one on television. You know, the old joke or something like that. I'm not a professional historian, but but it does refer to the electors who picked the president. And I have a theory, which is that what what the framers or not the, the framers of the of the insurrection clause thought is that if we were to bar electors who were loyal to the South, to the Confederacy, and make sure that there were no disloyal people, and then we let the loyal electors actually pick the president, 
they would never pick Jefferson Davis. And so what people are forgetting here is that this insurrection clause is being written at a time when people were, let's say, less cynical and more embracing the electoral college and the independence of electors to select people. So that that's my theory there, is that, is that at, at one point they were going to say, let's put faith in what the original framers of the Constitution believed in, independent electors who could use their discretion to make choices for who's fit to be president of the United States. That's my theory hmm. in terms of understanding what you're getting at here. Again, not a lot of good language in terms of the congressional record one way or the other. But 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 that's how I would approach it. They I think at the end of the day, they believe that independent electors would never pick somebody like Jefferson Davis. And I actually did a piece oh about two months ago, a little bit tongue in cheek, uh, but but still um serious, and said that if the Electoral College operated the way our framers intended. Trump would have never been president to start with because those independent electors probably would have reached a conclusion and said, Trump's not qualified to be president of the United States. Interesting theory. Um, I got a, another question for you, and that is... I like how, how dismissive he was of that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I, just, I have so little faith in the, in the electoral college system right yeah, now. Yeah, it's, hard yeah, to, yeah. it's hard to project backwards. But yeah. I, my, my question for you is... is how important do you think Chief Justice Roberts in particular uh, finds it for the court to issue a unanimous opinion here that this is such a, uh, a decision that's going to go right along the, a major fault line in American politics yeah. and that you I don't think you want a five to four decision saying, yeah, if Trump stays on the ballot or uh, or, you know, if. if Justice Thomas recuses himself, which he ought to. Um, yeah. uh, you know, a, 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 even a six three or six two, six three. That you you want the court to speak with one voice and to speak in a way that doesn't inflame either side, right? I, I mean, I, that'd be my guess. But and I mm-hmm. and I'm just knowing what I know about Ju- Justice Roberts, he seems like he's Chief Justice Roberts. It seems like he would want to find some opinion that that doesn't take Trump off the ballot, but doesn't seem like they're saying, yeah, what he did was okay. Yeah, I think you're absolutely correct here. He's a, at the end of the day, Roberts, I think, is a consensus builder. Now, some people may like or dislike Roberts, but I do think at the end of the day, he's trying to build a consensus here. And if I think of two other previous really significant Supreme Court opinions uh, where the chief justice has wanted uh, unanimity, uh, I'll, I'll briefly mention them. Um, Earl Warren wanted a 9-0 decision in Brown versus the Board of Education, you know, striking down segregated schools. And he worked hard to get that. And then back in 1974, I believe it's 74, even though Nixon had appointed Warren Burger to the Supreme Court, Warren Burger totally disappoints Richard Nixon. And he authors the unanimous opinion saying Nixon's got to cough up the Watergate tapes and interviews with both Burger and and with Warren said they understood it had to be a unanimous opinion. And I think it's the same thing here because I think the worst thing that could happen right now, you say 5-4, I'll say 6-3. What if it comes down 6-3 Republican appointed versus Democratic appointed? That is not going to be good for anybody whatsoever. So I see Roberts coming up with what I call a minimalist opinion. The opinion says Trump's on the ballot, but after that, doesn't engage in very much of anything else. Enough to hold all the justices together. 
Does it bother you that people argue that it should be the people that decide as though because Trump is a leading candidate and a lot of people love him, therefore he should be on the ballot? If that were the case and he was 28 years old, we would say, I know you love him and want him, but he's not in compliance with the Constitution. And it seems to me like people are trying to shoehorn that same sort of logic into this case, where they say, yeah, but he's Trump. You can't deny us our vote. And I'm thinking, 100% we can deny you your vote. If you fail to meet the qualifications of the third section of the 14th Amendment, then you don't get to be on the ballot. That's the Constitution. What do you make of this will of the people versus the written law? Well I, well, I agree with you in the sense that if somebody were to say be 34 years old, not a U.S. citizen by by birth, et cetera, et cetera, should the courts be able to take that person off the ballot or prevent it from being on the ballot? Of course. Now, whether or not those are good rules, doesn't matter. It somebody but else. it doesn't matter. That's not relevant if it's a good rule or law or not. It's exactly. the rule that's, or law. That's, that's the rule. That's, that's the point I was getting at here. If the Constitution says X, it says X. If you don't like X, change the Constitution. Here... If you can get to the point where you can reach the conclusion and say, yes, he's an officer of the United States, and B, he engaged in insurrection, whatever that is, should the courts be able to kick him off the ballot? Yes, they should. Okay, then the crux of that is maybe what's the definition of insurrection? Because it doesn't require a conviction. He doesn't have to have been impeached. He doesn't have to be found guilty of any law, correct? Correct? Correct. Okay. Correct. So, I, so I mean, I, I, what, I, what I hear David saying is that this, that the court is not is going to say that we, the United States Supreme Court, <clears throat> are not going to do a, a fact finding, uh, <clears throat> granular look at exactly what happened on January sixth or before and after that, and and make a decision of that, make a fact decision on that. We we are going to say this is not the decision for the courts to make. This is a decision for presumably congress to make right Correct. i mean Correct. and 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 because uh, it's not i mean i i i agree with this point about you know 34 year old or someone who happened to be born in kenya for instance uh <laughs> it could not be uh could not be yeah. president and and but that but that is a that's just a a, a plain binary true or false that's uh, correct. statement yeah. so but but what, what insurrection is 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 a i mean and that, that's why it's puzzling to me that i mean i i had never even considered article all right but if insurrection is this before, if insurrection is not this then insurrection is nothing eric did you see the new york times they did a chart of all of the things that trump had done that would have maybe fallen under a layperson's definition of insurrection like what do you think eric zorn insurrection would be would it be calling up the secretary of state of another state saying get me the votes would it be harassing publicly and privately the vice president to tell him to look away when the votes are cast i mean you know i could go on like that at some length shy of firing a gun and leading the charge trump did everything that an erect that an insurrectionist might do a couple of things first i'm going to say is that some of what you listed there i don't know if it's an insurrection is it possibly a crime is it is it obstruction of justice it may very well be and that's what a jury is going to presumably decide but what also troubles me let's talk about the other state where he's off the ballot it's in maine I don't know about you. I'm kind of bothered by the fact that a secretary of state in Maine said, you know what? He's an insurrectionist. He's off the ballot. Well, where was the hearing? Where was the due process? Where was some minimal protections? I mean, I may or may not like Donald Trump, but the broader principle that I'm going to def- I'm going to uphold here is to say that 
everybody's entitled to their day in court. Everybody's entitled to a fair hearing. And if, again, and this is where I again, I agree with the Colorado dissenting opinion that says, uh, if, if we might have changed our mind, if there actually was a good hearing here and a good decision, you know, in terms of, uh, of, of vetting all these issues. And so, again, I don't disagree with you, John, on, on the point of saying that the Constitution takes precedence. We just need some guidance regarding what does the Constitution actually say? And what, what does insurrection mean? Which is why I think, right. or pretty likely, I think the Supreme Court is going to come back and say, Congress, you go tell us what insurrection is. You go tell us what the standards are. And then if Congress does that, and if, and if now some state or whatever comes back and says, insurrectionist, God bless us, I uphold the Constitution. Right. Well, of course, and of course, we talked about this last week on this podcast, which was if if the Secretary of State from Maine can decide that, that Trump is off the ballot, and someone, then the Secretary of State from Texas can say, well, Joe Biden doesn't control the borders well enough. That's uh, allowing uh, uh, insurrectionary forces into the uh, into the country. Therefore, he's off the ballot. I mean, it, and there really could be no end to that. Uh, and that would be extremely toxic. I, I mean, I think there's a, a really a categorical difference between what happened in Colorado and what happened in Maine. That in Maine, there was at least a semblance of due process. It wasn't it wasn't a, a, a trial exactly, but but it was You're talking about it, Colorado? It have, there was a Colorado. Semblance, Colorado, Colorado, yes. was a semblance Colorado yeah. Process, yeah. 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 Um but 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 again, you know, if you don't have standards, if you just say, well, Trump did this uh and and there's no standards, we're just saying it's it's our say so that it was insurrection. And you know, I agree with you, John, and and, and I and I do think that he was he's a danger to our country and all, and all that stuff. But but I also but I also worry that you could establish a precedent here where every state could just decide, yeah, we don't like that bum. He's from the other party, and you have to have some sort of standards in place. It's puzzling to me that the people who wrote that Fourteenth Amendment didn't think this through very well. <laughs> I mean, apparently, yeah. yeah. Well, well, I think I think I think there's two things going on here. First, that they wrote from a completely different era yeah. where where I don't think they thought there was going to be... I mean, remember, they were the victors. They won... We won the Civil War. Um, um, we, we we get to decide um, at this point, and there was consensus at this point about who's right, who's who's wrong, and stuff like that. So, so I think that's going on um, in terms of one of the issues here um, to think about. But I think also your point is exceedingly well taken about, you know, pick and choose. I mean, I think about right now, how impeachment has become a tit for tat. I mean, sometime this year, the um, the House of Representatives is going to probably impeach Joe Biden because of stuff that his son did. Now, his you know his son hasn't been convicted of anything, but from what I can tell, Hunter Biden is not exactly a model citizen. All right, uh, uh, maybe not maybe not the kind of son that I would want to have or something like that. But look at we've now got we've gotten to the point where it's like okay, they tried to impeach Nixon, then they impeached Clinton, then they impeached Trump a couple times. Now we're going to impeach Biden. We've reduced impeachment down to a trivial um, uh, political tool. I'm worried the impeachment clause gets turned, or, or the insurrection clause gets turned in the same way too. Yeah, uh-huh. I, I, I think the Republican desire to impeach Biden is, is just about revenge and trying to yeah. take some of the sting out of Trump's multiple impeachments. Yeah. I, I don't think that Republicans are ser- seriously think that that uh, Joe Biden has committed high crimes and misdemeanors. Although there are there are some commentators in this town who seem to think that. Um, Biden is a criminal, but well, here's uh, my not last, on this panel. <laughs> here's my last question for David, and I'll let you guys uh, chime in one last time with David before we let him go. Should Clarence Thomas recuse himself? 
Yes, definitely at this point. Given the fact that we've got emails and information that his um, his wife is an interested party in lots of the facts that were going on here. What emails regarding what Wisconsin, if I remember correctly, clearly Arizona yeah. in terms of being involved. Uh, I would say that uh, he's there's enough of a conflict of interest here that even if it's not a real conflict. The appearance of impropriety should be so important, and courts are supposed to wor- be worried about that. You know, I'm a law professor, and I talk about this, is that our standards as lawyers, as judges, is supposed to be uh, up to the level. Even the appearance should be enough to dictate recusal. He should be off the case. David, as a court watcher, we we all obviously agree here that he should be recusing himself, but do you think he will recuse himself and... If he doesn't recuse himself, is there really anything anyone can do about that? Well, not really. To the latter, there's nothing anybody can do because it's even though the court came out now with supposedly new guidelines for for conflicts of interest and everything, it's all voluntary, you know, at this point. Is that, and, and one of the things when I talk to people, when I talk about like issues of conflict of interest, I say sometimes our, we are so conflicted, we don't even have a clue that we don't have a clue. Um, and and I almost think at this point, Thomas just doesn't have, somewhere between he doesn't care or he doesn't have a clue in terms of how bad all this looks at this point. I mean, he's he's got to recuse himself, but I don't think he will. It's Which like- becomes interesting now because what if it's, what if it becomes 9-0 and he joins the 9-0 saying Trump um, um, stays on the ballot, even though it's unanimous, does his participation taint the opinion? Right, right. It would almost be if you wanted a a, a purer unanimous decision, 8-0 is better than 9-0 in this case. David? I think so. Yeah. I think so. Interesting take. From David Schultz, a professor at, David, I said Hamlin University, correct? And are you still um, teaching in the political science department at University of Minnesota as well? I am Hamlin University political science in the law school at the University of Minnesota. Yeah. So I live in two different worlds. I live in the world of law and in the world of political science. One last thing. Uh, you have written books I mentioned at the beginning of this conversation about 10 swing states, which you have charted over the last few elections, reminding people here's where the game is going to get played. Do you have another book coming out, or what's the uh, the next big thought from David Schultz? Okay, so first off, in terms of the swing states, it's no longer 10 it's down now to, to less than that. So I tell people that going into the election this year, it's four numbers, 555270. 5% of the voters located in five counties in five swing states determine who gets to 270 electoral votes. That's how close it is at this point. So so that's sort of the, the amendment to that. But yes, later this spring, I have a book coming out and it's on generational politics. And it's all about how politics changes as we have the ebb and flow of generations and at a time right now where the nice way of describing it as the baby boomers are exiting the political system and being replaced by the millennials and gen z i look at what that means in terms of this generational shift well then you've got to come back on when's the book come out yes or the hardcover comes out soon, but I can have the um, um, the publishers, which is the University of Michigan Press, send you a digital version. And at some point, we can come back and do another show and just talk about that in terms of what, how does politics vary across generations? Because what really is fascinating at this point is that four years ago now, in 2020, 
was the first election since the 1990s where the baby boomers were no longer the largest generational voting bloc, and it's now shifting away. And we know the millennials and Gen Zs have very, very different voting preferences. And so so over time, we're going to see this shift occur. Now, I'll just throw one other fun, interesting item here. Okay, so assuming this year it's Trump versus Biden again, which it's looking like, people are saying it's the same election all over again. I said, not quite. By the time you look at the number of people who have unfortunately passed away and the number of people who have turned 18 in the last four years, 18% of the electorate is different this time. Hmm. And younger, I presume, uh, obviously, right? Yeah. Presumably younger, we would think at this point. But but what I get it, but the point is, is that what's that old phrase? You can't step in the same river twice. In some ways, you can't have the same election twice because we've got people exiting the system and coming in. And that's what the book about generation politics Hmm. is, is how do people across different generations think about politics differently? What's the title of that book? What's the title of the book? It's going to be called Generational Politics in the United States. Again, I will send you a a (laughs) link to it. And, and I'll make sure the publisher sends you a, a, a digital copy. I have a, just a quick question about this shift, which is, which party does this benefit? Would people in my baby boom generation exiting the stage, isn't that how you put it? Um, yeah, yeah. And, and the new people coming in, does this advantage this Democrats? Or how does that how does that work? Potentially Democrats. But this is a flaw, because many years ago, there was a book that was written about 14 years ago, and the argument was that as the new generations come in, they're more racially diverse, um, um, they're more secular, and the argument was the demographics are destiny, that they favor the Democrats. And what I've always said is demographics are not destiny. Demographics are possibilities, that at the end of the day, you still have to have what? A good message, a good candidate, a good strategy, et cetera, et cetera. But both political parties are facing an existential crisis because among those who are approximately under the age of 30, you know, the Gen Zs, the millennials, nearly 40% of them, maybe higher, say a pox on both parties. Uh, I don't consider myself a member of either party. And both of them are facing a longer term, again, existential problem that if they don't figure out ways of reaching out to a new generation, the parties, the way they look at right now, are going the dinosaur route. You're saying that uh, 80-year-old presidential candidates are not going to attract these young voters? Yeah, no kidding. Imagine that. Shocking. Shocking. What are the five states, David? The five states are Arizona. Actually, I'll give you the listing here. Maricopa County in Arizona, Fulton County in Georgia, Wayne County, Michigan, Allegheny County, Pennsylvania, and Brown County, or Door County, Wisconsin. I'm, I'm not sure which of those two. Both of them, you know, because they're right next to one another. Brown County is 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 Green Bay. Door County, you know, is right up on sure. top of there. Uh, but but those are the five or six counties. And so, what happens with an incredibly small number of voters in those five counties in those five swing states are going to decide the election? And if we think about it, four years ago, move forty three thousand votes in Arizona, Georgia, and Wisconsin. Trump is is in his second term. Four years earlier, moved 90,000 votes in Wisconsin, Michigan, and Pennsylvania. Clinton would have been president. I'm not quite down to the point yet of saying how Harry and Louise vote on on Elms, for Elm Street 
in, in Brown County determine the election. But we are so polarized, it's almost down to that. David Schultz, okay. Uh, well done. Let's um, let's invite you back again real soon, David. My pleasure. Thank you. I'll let him click Bye. out. Thank you, David. He's good. Really yeah. good. How about that? Fun. Huh? That was really yeah. fun. Yeah. No it was a lot of fun, guys. Yeah. Hey, yeah. you have to click out. We're going to say what we think about you now. All right, good. <laughs> but feel, by the way, feel free to have me back anytime. Excellent. Good. Talk okay. to you soon. See you, bud. Last week, a family was rescued from their car after it plunged into a retention pond in Naperville. A librarian saw it happen, called the cops. They arrived, smashed out the back window, rescued three people. They say they hit the gas instead of the brakes. Someone drowned in Utah last week after driving into the water behind a dam. And in a state out east last week, two women died when their car, possibly misreading their GPS, drove right off the road, down a boat dock, and into a lake on a foggy night. Um, Kate, you were paying attention to these stories, too, weren't you? You said that this is a topic that you sometimes talk about when you are walking those dogs you mentioned earlier with your friends. Yeah, well, I I heard you and uh, Bob Surratt actually talking about it. And it's something that's really stuck in my head, especially since that young girl, I forget her name, the poor young girl in the suburbs who was apparently, she was missing for like a week before they realized that on her way to her company Christmas party, she had just driven into this suburban retention pond. Um, and it was pretty much decided that she, that the GPS had shown her that that's where she was supposed to turn because she didn't know where she was. And she just turned and drove into this retention pond. It, it's really stuck in my head because I, I am constantly harping on it to my kids, but also to my friends, not to let ourselves be infantilized by so much new technology. I mean, it's something that um, when I was a kid in the 60s and 70s, my, my parents were telling me, and of course, I didn't, you know, didn't listen to them very much. But, but as the years have gone by, and I've seen new technology come into my life, I have tried to you know, use it, don't want to be a Luddite, but not let it completely take me over. And and, and an example that I gave you, besides not always following your GPS into the water, is, uh, for instance, I, I actually dial phone numbers. My most important phone numbers, I dial. I don't just, you know hit speed dial, I actually dial the phone number so that I don't forget them. Wow, and, I don't I mean, do I that. remember back in the, like, 90s, I think, when we first started getting the programmable phones, and everyone I knew was like, I don't know anyone's phone number anymore. And I and I said, well, I don't think I'm going to let that happen to How me. How many I'm phone saying. numbers do you think you know? Oh, not a lot anymore, but I, I, know, I know at four. least like I think five I know. or six. <laughs> that's I, that's I only know I I only know two. I know mine and Johanna's phone number, and I don't know my kids' phone numbers, and oh. I don't know my dad's phone number. I have no idea. I, 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 he's uh, they're they're icons on my phone. Um, I don't consider this to be a, a problem. <laughs> this, I mean, not. I'm not, this is not not taking me into fatal situations, but but it is true that you start you, you yeah. stop relying on uh, on your memory for things. Like oh that. yeah, and your ability just to learn. Like you could learn those phone numbers you used to when you were a teenager. I well, find exactly. and I find myself when I'm driving from say, a suburb I don't normally go to or to a place in the city I don't normally go to, but which I ought to be able to navigate, 
you know, with a map or handwritten instructions. I don't even try. I just follow that little dot on my screen and I go where it tells me to go. Once in a while, I'll expand the view to see in general, am I heading northwest? Because I'm pretty sure I got to be out that way. But I, I agree with you that it, it kind of bothers me or even worries me that we, <laughs> we're not learning things that we ought to be able to know. We're just. That is what I'm talking about. Just what letting, I'll do is. I'll I'll type in where I want to go if I really don't know how to go there. I really have no idea. I will type it into the GPS and I'll look at the instructions and then I just turn it off. I'm like, okay, fine. Now oh, I know what really? to do. Really, smarty. Well, I I have sometimes driven the same route several times and realized I still don't know exactly where to turn because I've never had to. I just hear exit in 400 feet. I go, all right, I'll get over all here, right. and I'm like, I don't even know where I am sometimes, and yet somehow magically I arrive at the right door. Um, and and the other angle on that story was, Eric, that it wasn't just our dependence on technology that we shouldn't have to depend on, but it was also what do you do when your water is submerged? I've been talking to Bob about the fact that you should have one of those little hammers in your glove compartment and chisel your way out because you have about 60 seconds on average if a car goes into the water to get out. Do either of you have one of that. those? So do there's you? a special hammer for that? Yes, and you can go online and you can get it. And once you do, for the rest of your life, you'll get ads for that hammer as well. But it's a little <laughs> hammer and you pop your window and then you swim out to safety. There's a whole sort of protocol for what to do to save yourself. Mm-hmm. Don't call 911. Uh, immediately roll down the window. Don't try and open the door. And the window should work if it's electric powered for a minute or two. But if it doesn't, that hammer is the way you got to get out. And I, uh, we make fun of my wife because she got those hammers for us. And we're like, oh, geez, Brenda, really? Those oh, hammers yeah. also have on them, they have a, a, an edge that you can cut your seatbelt. Seat yes. You uh, can, the, oh, the hammer yeah. has, a, has a blade on it that you can cut your seatbelt on. I mean, I, I think we have one in one of our cars. I don't, I would, the thing is, I don't, it's not like, on the dashboard. So if if I drive into a lake, I would just probably panic and go, where's that hammer? And then I would look in the wrong place. It's in the trunk. Oh, damn. Oh, yeah, it's in the trunk, yeah, right? Yeah. I'll call my car and say, Brenda, quick, listen, you've got to get over here. I'm in <laughs> I'm in the water and you've got, would you mind running over? But they say, don't call 911 because by the time the police get there, it's too late. You've got to save yourself. And I think right. those are two uh, good mental exercises for us all to engage in. Know how to get where you're going. And if the problem arrives, how are you going to save yourself? You are on your own. It's uh, good to talk to both of you today, Eric and Kate. And uh, how about that Dave Schultz? Good guy, huh? I hope you enjoyed his conversation. I really enjoyed that. I am interested to hear more about what's in his uh, book about the generational uh, voting changes. And five counties, enough to make him want to move to uh, Pennsylvania or Wisconsin <laughs> and be a decider. You know, there was a time when uh, uh, Democrats were, were urging other Democrats to move to red states, but really if they had just targeted these certain counties, and I didn't have them all memorized, but you know we always see them up on the map on CNN and MSNBC on election night. That's that's what they should have done. Door County's lovely. Right now, I guess. I could do that. All right. We're produced by Ben Anderson and Pete Zimmerman. Thank you both for being part of the podcast. I'm John Williams, and we'll drop another pot on you next week. Welcome All back, right. Eric. See you, everybody. Thanks, Thanks. Buddy. Nice See going, you guys Kate. soon. Thank you, my friends. See you.
Subscribe to the Mincing Rascals podcast on iTunes or the Google Play Music Store. You can now also follow us on Spotify, or you can keep listening online at WGNRadio.com. 